I saw this, the, the, the body, I had to stop. They have built a wall, a protective wall, around their emotions. It's um, the darkest, most disturbing material you could ever look at in your life. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today in the studio is... Hi everybody, it's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, we are back together in the studio. As always, it's a wonderful pleasure. It is. Well, everyone doesn't realize this, and we occasionally get commenters who say, does Jim really like Francie? I just want to know, for the record, Jim, we're sitting right next to each other. And you're smiling. (laughs) What record? This record. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, today, Francie, we have a very special guest and close friend with us today. Tony Dennison. Formerly of the uh, TNT television series Major Crime, and before that, The Closer, and before that, a lot of other different shows. Yeah, but well, what's our favorite one? Well, the favorite one, uh, which is the show that gave me my big break, is uh, Crime Story, Michael Mann uh, show that uh, we did for uh, NBC way back in 1986. Yeah, but that way before back. Before cell phones. But that way back is actually responsible for how you and I met, right? Exactly. Because I was actually visiting Criminal Minds. Uh, it was a shoot right before my first episode that I was going to shoot that I had written. And so I was basically sitting on the set watching and I looked at the screen and I was like, oh my God, that's Ray Luca. And the director looks at me like, what are you talking about? What are you, you're, I said, look, that's Ray Luca. And he's like, you're insane. But anyway, then I said, um, Tony Dennison, I used his name. Well, I used Anthony Luca as my undercover name when I was in the FBI and I went undercover. And so in Chicago. Yeah. And wait, 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 in Chicago wait. and New York. Yeah. So wait, let me just get this straight. You. Jim Clemente, fanboyed out over Tony <laughs> Dennison. This is what I'm hearing. I did. So I it did. isn't just me, everybody who does it. It's Jim yes, too. You're right. Um, so anyway, a few minutes later, Tony Dennison walks off the set over to us and he said, hey, I heard you use my name. And I was like, <laughs> oh no, he's pissed off at me. Yeah, and then right. he breaks a smile and he was really, he gives me a hug. And that was the beginning of our now, what, 14 year friendship? 
my God, it's been that long. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Wait, yeah. that means you put up with Jim for 14 years. Yeah. Francie, no more, That's please. Tough, yeah, it was funny. And, you know, and then Jim uh, took me once. I went to, uh, when I was traveling east to visit family, uh, it took me to Quantico. Yeah. And we went to the FBI headquarters there, and I took the uh, infamous FATS test. Yes, Uh-oh. which is a firearms simulation training test mm-hmm. and it's all done it's an interactive movie so you have a laser gun so you fire it just like a regular firearm but it fires a laser so it actually times your reaction and it's a shoot don't shoot situation and what was amazing and i'm sure tony will remember the exact amount of time but as i recall it was under a quarter of a second for tony to respond and shoot accurately and then in another situation there was a situation where the FBI agent was struggling with a bad guy and the bad guy was getting the best of him. And Tony responded and shot while these two guys were rolling around on the six floor. Six times. Six times. And he hit the bad guy six times. Only to one, one, one bullet went through the bad guy's wrist, we would imagine, and went into oh, one uh, of my partner's guys. shoulder. <laughs> right. Yeah. But he hit the bad guy every time. So you and he goes, how did you? Cop. He goes, how did you do that? I said, well, I just took my time and I aimed, and you know, took his time. It was like under three seconds. <laughs> you know, it was ridiculous. Jim, so. you've never taken me to this. But it was well, like Sundance. It was like the Sundance Kid. You know, remember in the movie Butch, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid when he's aiming for the thing and he can't hit it, and he says, "Can I move?" And they said, "Yeah, move." And he moves, and then he hits the target like each time. <laughs> well, that's what I said to Jim while I was doing. I said, "Can I move?" And he goes, yeah, of course you can move. And as soon as I start, was able to start moving my body, I was able to shoot mm. more more accurately. Anyway, the good old days back at the FBI That was Academy. a lot of fun. Yeah. So anyway, Tony, we have you here today on Best Case, Worst Case to talk about best case and worst cases. And we're going to let you decide whether that's from reality or one of the shows you worked on or something else. So let's talk about this. When in your career... The, the first case that you're thinking wait, about. Wait, 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 wait. But before we get to the normal question, Jim, which is our normal question, you've been playing cops and bad guys and mob stuff your whole career. I'd like a little bit of background on Tony. Yeah, but can't we? I want our listeners to just know a little bit about who he is, sort of where he grew up, where he came from. Okay. I, I think that's the way. To, I'd like to start that way if it's okay with you, Jim. Well, if you must. <laughs> I must. So where did you grow up? I was born in Manhattan in um, it was a hospital on Madison Avenue and 86th Street, 85th Street. And at the time, it was called Gotham City Hospital. No, so my really? birth certificate says Gotham City on it. Wow. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, and Bruce Wayne was born on the next floor. No, uh, but it was that's where I was born in Manhattan. My family lived in Harlem in New York. And, uh, you know, we were blue collar people, but, you know, they wanted me to be born in this hospital. And, that's where I started out life. And I was there for about seven years until they tore down the buildings to build the projects. And then we moved out to Queens, uh, Hollis, Queens. And I lived there for about seven years. And then we moved out to, uh, when I was about 15 or 16, we moved out to Hicksville. Okay. Uh, So, so far, Tony, I think your life pretty closely resembles the life of a rapper. Yes, exactly. Pretty much. Yeah. And also all the, all the cities that I lived in, uh, I, all this area, I lived in Harlem, which began with an H mm-hmm. and then I lived in, uh, Hollis, which began with an H and then I lived in Hicksville, which began with an H <laughs> and then Hollywood and then Hollywood. Yeah. It's a theme. So did you, did like you the want- Paul Newman, HUD, Harper, yeah, you know, exactly. did you always want to be an actor? Was that something no, you knew from No, acting was the furthest thing from my mind. In fact, I wanted to do what Jim, what Jim did. I wanted to, I was 
really tempted to join the FBI. So I was going to apply to Northwestern for law school, do two years of law school, and then go into the FBI. And then just things sort of just changed in my life. And then I was tired of school. You know, once I graduated from college, I was like, that's it. I don't want, you know, I wanted to get involved in different things. So that didn't happen. But it was really, it wasn't like, I didn't have a fire in my belly about it, but I really, I wanted to, I wanted to serve people. I wanted to help people. And so now you do by entertaining them, which is really very similar in my opinion. Well, I guess, you know, to some degree, because if you look at what acting is about for me or what movies and TV shows, ideally they have like two purposes. One is to either educate or to entertain. Okay. But if they can do both, then it's like really special. Mm -hmm. But ultimately it's to just, you know, entertain you or educate you. And in a lot of ways that serves people. Like I did a movie one time. It was a television movie. It was with Susan Day. It was called I Love You Perfect. And I just... It was not a movie that I would ever normally get cast in, you know, and and how they cast these things. But I was very popular at the network at the time. And so I was able to to get it. And um, I loved it because it was just such a great love story. But it was about a woman whose uh, gynecological clinic or whatever screwed up some information. And had they not screwed it up, you know, she would have lived. And she wound up dying because she wound up getting cervical cancer as a result of it. And uh, what happened is as a result of the movie is we kept getting a lot of letters and stuff from different people who said that they changed their clinic that they were going to and that they were a little unhappy with services they were receiving at the places that, and they said, rather than get to a point where something like that would happen, they would change. And, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, you know, if maybe ultimately if that saved somebody's life, then it was worth the whole entire movie and all the time and all the money spent if one person's life was saved. Well, and, you know, I was reading an article this week and with economic uh, uncertainty, they say that the one business that never really suffers a downturn is Hollywood, is the TV and movie business. And that's because people need entertainment. But I think also because people hunger to uh, learn about things they don't know anything about to, you know, from superhero movies all the way to movies like A Quiet Place, like we were talking about horror and family and love and loss and fighting and good versus evil all of this is encompassed and the people want to escape especially when this heart when you look back during the depression in our country hollywood flourished and those movies were cost like a nickel or a dime Mm -hmm. and they flourished because people just wanted to go someplace sit and then like you know like when when air conditioning was just starting out you know sitting sitting in a lot of those theaters and saying you know what i'm in that dark space and, and i'm watching this this light on the screen and it's transporting me someplace else. Right. Absolutely. My father talks about that and being able to spend like a nickel or a dime and be there for three double features and two variety shows in between. You could go to the movies with, with the 20, with 25 cents and get popcorn, get goobers, peanuts and, and, and and a Coke and, and then watch like two come cereals, you know, two features. And then if you wanted to stick around, you can watch them again. Yeah, the good old days. The good old days. Okay, so now we can start in where Jim was. Oh, thank you, Francis. You're so kind. Okay. Well, Tony, where in your career were you when this particular episode or case happened? I think it was in the first year of of, of The Closer, Okay, this particular episode. So when you're on The Closer, did you find out about the topics of the case only when you got the script to read or... Did people tell you kind of generally what's coming next? Only when I got the script to read. All right. So what were you doing when you got the script for this particular episode? 
Well, as always, I have a certain set routine. I get a script and uh, I sit down. I read it right away. But do you read it at home? Or you at home, breakfast? I read it. I read it at home. Usually over breakfast. You know, okay. I read it in the morning. I'll sit down and I'll I'll look through it, or I'll go on the treadmill and I'll read it while I'm you know walking three miles or four miles on the treadmill, and then get an idea of you know what the story's about. Certainly, and and what ideas I might want to bring to it. Highlight certain lines in certain situations. But there's always, you know, as in any case, there's always a distance between you, even if it's obviously the character, I've got to know that character really well, My, you know, 13 years I played that character. But even in the beginning, in the first year, it's still as much as you're familiar with the character, there's still a distance that occurs because what's on the printed page when it transforms to the set is totally different. You know, that's why a lot of times for actors, a lot of times actors have a tough time in audition because what they'll do in an audition has nothing to do whatsoever when you're actually on the set. But that's the system, the way it's structured. So you try to do the best you can. One little formula I use, I just say in my mind that the audition is the job. I'm not auditioning for a job. I'm auditioning for the job of auditioning, you know, just doing that, serving the material as best I can. Then if I get the, if I get the role, then that's a whole nother, you know, set of circumstances. And is it different because you're not in the situation, you're not in the scene, you don't really know what everybody else is doing or how people are playing? Yeah, and you don't know how. Of- yeah, you don't know where it's going to be. You don't know the setup. You you can imagine what says inside somebody's bedroom or inside the home, you know. And you think, okay. And then when you actually get to the set, like this particular one, which really st- still stands out in my mind today, and this was in the first year of the closer. We went to this house, which wound up being the old Ozzy and Harriet house. Oh, really? Yeah, you, know, you know, Ozzy was way ahead of the curve, this guy. God bless him. He had this home where the family lived, and he designed it in such a way that there were hidden bedrooms in the house where while they were filming in the house, Harriet could go into a hidden part of the master bedroom, and she could sew and watch TV, and, and, the, and the boys had a separate hidden bedroom inside their two bedrooms that they could go to. Meanwhile, they could shoot the whole house, and these people could be unseen for hours at a time if they wanted to. But he, and, he, and he rented the house out to the studio, to the, to the network, as the studio. So he made money not only producing the show, he made money as the studio because wow. it, was, it, was, it was, like I said, this guy was way ahead of the curve. And the house still exists. But anyway, so uh, that to me was a thrill because I remember when I was a kid watching Ozzy and Harriet, uh, you know, which is a great show because Ozzy never had a job. You know, if you ever watch the old Ozzy and Harry's, he never went to the, he said, I'm, he's either going to the mall shop or going to go play golf. He never said, I'm going to work today, Harry. He didn't work. He didn't have a job. That's Harry, great. The funniest concept when you think about it. <laughs> the man did not have a job. But anyway, so we're in this house, but it was a, it was a, based on a true story that Mike Bertram, who was a former New York City, I mean, uh, LAPD detective, uh, who was our advisor at the time and then eventually became a producer on the series. He talked about this one case, one of the cases, and you you go into this house and it was a case where you knew the story because you'd read it in the reading before we did, we actually went to the set. But the son, the younger son, it was like the father left and went and remarried and now had a whole nother family. And the one boy, his first, his first male boy, his first male son was just jealous. You know, when they talk about the seven deadly sins, you know, like an envy you're capable if you're if you're envious enough. You're capable of murder. And this kid went one night and slaughtered the entire family. Wow. But when I remember when we were doing the set, <clears throat> when I was walking the set, my character comes up and discovers the girl, you know, his half sister. And I'm telling you, even though I know it was like an actress, 
a young girl pretending to be dead, and it was pretend blood. The way that the light, it was at night, and the way the, the moon was coming in, our moon, our manufactured moonlight was coming in. When I got there and I was looking at this thing and, and I saw this, the, the, the body, I had to stop in wow. the middle of the scene. And I just said, you know, guys, I'm sorry. I, I just need a break for a second. And they was like, what's the matter? I said, this is like so incredibly gruesome. And um, I remember I, you know, Mike Bertram came over to me and, you know, and he was telling me, he goes, yeah, he goes, you know, I said, how did you do that? How do you do this? Like you too, Jim. I mean, how do you do this? It was like you go and you see this, like the absolute nadar of humanity and uh, looking at this thing. And it, it took me, it took me about 15, 20 minutes to collect myself. Well, and me. as a result of one thing, but as a result of that, later on in the show, not necessarily in that episode per se, though I did a little bit, but later on in the series, I kept in certain crime situations. In fact, the more gruesome it was, the more I would ad lib occasionally some like clever retort or a funny line to, you know, to bring levity. Mm-hmm. And he said one time at first, they said, I don't, know, I don't know if you would do that. And he said, oh, you would definitely bring some kind of humor because otherwise so you go crazy. Exactly. And that's what I was going to say. You said, how did we do it in the real world? I'm sure Mike would agree that one of the things that you do because you're seeing, as you said, the worst things that humans do to humans right. is that you have to interject some <clears throat> dark humor and it doesn't sound right to people on the outside. But if you don't do it, and, and this comes from the top psychological and psychiatric minds in the country, that if you don't do it as a law enforcement officer, that you will go insane, that it will overburden you, you'll be completely depressed, it will crush your life. And the way to relieve some of that pressure is to basically engage in off-color humor. But the other thing is that what we did as law enforcement officers, especially in scenes like that, is we sort of develop a clinical detachment. In other words, just like a surgeon only looks at the area that they're about to cut open, you know, they cover everything of that body up and they only have the part exposed that they're actually working on. It helps them focus on that area and what they have to do and not the person and what they might be going through or how upset they might be or their family members, because you need to focus in order to do your job. So we do that. Whereas when you're acting, I think you're doing exactly the opposite. What you're trying to do is feel the emotions mm-hmm. of the officers, right? You're trying to get yeah. inside their heads and express those emotions. So in a certain sense, you're actually probably feeling it a lot more than the people who actually have to work the job because they have, yeah, because they have built a wall, a protective wall around their emotions when you're actually not used to that. You're used to feeling just like any other human. You haven't built up this psychological barrier between the horrific things you have to see and the things you want to feel. Well, and the same really was true for me as a prosecutor, especially as a federal prosecutor, focusing on uh, child exploitation cases and having to see so much child pornography. It's um, the darkest, most disturbing material you could ever look at in your life. But you have to see it and you have to deal with it and you have to show it to a jury and talk about it and tell a judge what it is and explain it and argue about it and convict someone of having it or abusing children in order to produce it. And in order to do that, you have to be able to take a step back. So I think Jim is absolutely right. I was desperately trying not to put myself in the shoes of the victim which I always found a challenge because I I feel like I have a very vivid imagination. I think maybe a little bit of every good prosecutor is a good actor because you have to 
perform in that courtroom, especially when it comes to things like closing arguments and cross-examination. And so there's a tiny bit of acting involved in being a prosecutor because if you're acting, you're a little step, you're one step removed from your emotions, or at least that's how a non-actor, that's how I always thought of it, is I was able to be someone that I wasn't. So in other words, I'm talking about emotions that I'm trying not to feel. Right, right. Because it does enable me to have that that one step removed where I think Jim's right. It seems to me, armchair psychologist, that the reason you felt so strongly and had to stop when you first saw that actress is because you had put yourself in the position of a detective walking in on a crime scene and seeing a gruesome murder and a dead body. And that's emotional. There's just no way around it. So I think that's an interesting difference between the two jobs. Hey guys, have you made New Year's resolutions about your health? Well, this year you can make health and wellness a top priority with the help of Care-of's monthly subscription vitamin service. Whether you're focused on glowing skin, boosting your energy, getting more sleep, or just generally being more healthy. Did you know that 90% of people fall short of FDA-recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin or nutrient? You can find out what you're lacking with Care-of's online quiz. It's fun and easy, and it'll help you get back on track reaching your health goals. Once you figure out what you're lacking and place your order, the subscription box gets sent right to your door every month with personalized daily packs, which is great for a busy on-the-go lifestyle. For me, skincare is always important, especially as much as I travel. And so now I can travel with my sort of go-to skincare vitamins in an easy pack. So take advantage of this month's special New Year's offer. For 50% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, go to takecareof.com and enter the promo code BESTCASE50. That's 50% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins at takecareof.com and enter the promo code BESTCASE50. All right, so you compose yourself, you come back into the scene, and how do you deal with it at that point? Well, I go back. I mean, I went like way, way back. We I went back to when I like even first come into the uh, came, coming up the stairway to where I discover the body. And then I just I realized that as a professional, that there are certain things that I need to do where if I'm feeling a certain way, I just use it maybe to motivate me to like just be as thorough and as exact as I can mm-hmm. instead of allow making it, you know, making me become like so super emotional that I can't focus properly sure. or also to make and make mistakes where I might contaminate incorrectly uh, a crime scene. And because of the more gruesome it is, the more you want them to see that person be brought to justice, whoever it is. And um, what really surprised me about this, I mean, I knew the, I knew who it was. It was, there was the son, it was this girl's stepbrother. And I realized like, you, I don't know if you guys found in your journeys, but I know on the show, the crime scenes where it is the most gruesome are mostly related to family. You know, this is like, that's like incredibly, well, you could say that's incredibly personal. You know, this is not some random lunatic who walked into your house and, you know, I mean, obviously there are serial killers who are, you know, complete, you know, space monkeys and they need to be, you know, put, put away someplace forever and ever. But there are people from this planet, you know, who can get to a place where, they just cross over into this this Netherland, right? And they're capable of all manner of of evil. Well, Tony, to answer your question, I, I think 
yes, there there have been many cases in which you see the just the rage and the anger, the emotion that's exhibited at the crime scene in the the violence that's there. And you know that there's a reason for it. And many times that reason is because there's a personal relationship. But then on the other end of that spectrum, there are people that for no apparent reason actually enjoy causing pain and suffering. And those people are typically sadistic and psychopathic and and they do not see other human beings the way we do. They see them as a chair or a box or something right, they can right. use. I've, I've, so, heard, I've read about that. In yeah. fact, I think you and I have had conversations regarding that situation. Yeah. But in, in cases like I described where I, we, we walked in and you see, I mean, the, whole, the house is, is awash in blood. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, do you immediately, as soon as you walk in, say, okay, this is family? This is most likely a family situation? Not necessarily because it, you just you always want to eliminate in any homicide case eliminate the people closest to the victims okay you that's, always do yeah so that's that's the standard yeah, so, that's right and the reason why you eliminate them is because it is the highest probability however there are many cases in which people unfortunately cross paths with somebody they don't even know and i think we were talking about a case today Francie and i where somebody who literally just focused on a family wiped out that family and stole the daughter and just... You mean this thing that was on the news? Yes. Yeah. Miraculously, she survived. She survived. Tony, I'm really interested, and I wonder if it's because uh, that you thought about law enforcement as a career. It seems to me that it's very important to you to portray not just the character, but the actions of the character in an accurate way. Why is that, do you think? Why do you care? I don't know. I it just... Uh... I've always been, um, I don't want to say a justice freak in that sense, but I, I like to think myself always the champion of an underdog. And in the case of a person who's been slaughtered like that, you know, they need somebody to stand up and, and, and be counted for them. And uh, you just can't let it, the idea of let somebody getting away with the, with the old expression, getting away with murder, is reprehensible to me. It always has been, and I, hopefully it always will be. I love it when I read some story on the news and then something breaks and then eventually, like certain, it's like I remember when I watched that Scott Peterson thing go down. Mm-hmm. So the minute that story broke, okay, and when they were at the hotel and they were like organizing the people, I didn't know anything about the case other than a couple of news clips here and there. But as soon as they had him and he was like sort of laughing and joking with the people, I was like, oh, yeah, we got it. And I, I remember I said, he killed her. You know, and somebody said, "What is? He's the murderer." I said, "I don't care. They're not saying anything yet, but I'm telling you, if that were my wife, the last thing in the world that would come out of my mouth would be any kind of a flippant remark." And the fact that he was like sort of joking with the people, I said, "He's definitely the murderer." So, and then a couple of days later, there was they, they started leading him right. into the. So what you notice, just as a average person, you know, a person maybe who's a little more attuned to people's behavior because you grew up in a in a really intense city and uh, <laughs> and you had this law enforcement, you know, leaning that you realized that there was something absolutely missing from the husband in this case. And that was profound grief yeah. and anxiety and fear. These things that we would naturally look for in somebody who has just lost a wife who was pregnant, who basically, you know, reportedly was just stolen away, there's a reaction that humans have. And it's pretty universal. 
And when some people see that and say, well, you know, some people grieve differently. <laughs> they don't no, grieve that don't. differently. If they don't grieve at all, then that's not grieving. Well, I can that, see being stunned. Well, of course. You know, but. Well, a flat but, affect is one thing, but right. that, that what you're talking about is another. And I would say, too, that as an actor, especially someone who's been uh, someone who's played law enforcement and been in justice roles, maybe the bad guy occasionally. Yes, I have. If I'm not mistaken, you played John Gotti. Yes, I did. Uh, so you've been on both sides as an actor. I feel like you're a sort of a human behavior studier. I mean, you're kind of a profiler in the, in the sense, in a very real sense, like Jim was. In reality, you are also a profiler because you have to profile the characters, the people <laughs> you're playing off of, the people in the scene who are playing dead. That's what an actor does, yeah, right? You're it's like being an undercover agent. Yeah. You know, I mean, when, when you're undercover, you know, obviously you are a person. So you bring your own reactions to a situation. But then you're this other person. You're playing this other person and you have to think how would that person respond to the same situation? I have to remove myself from that equation and only use the tools that this other person would have and bring to it. So, I mean, that's, I think, a perfect example of, of what acting is. Mm, at least. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think we've had a conversation about this and I, and I know it's not something that I can prove. It's just some feelings that I've had that I think that any act of murder is an act of insanity. And I don't care if it's like premeditated initially, but when you go, when you actually take somebody's life, something I think switches off inside of your head. And for that moment that you actually do that, you must be insane. I mean, I just, not that it's excusable that you should go to the, you know, the house for the insane and that's what you do for the rest of your, for your punishment. But I'm just saying that barring whatever your punishment may be, in that moment, I think that everybody who commits murder, premeditated or not, in that second is gone completely insane. That makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it's one of those things where there are lots of different kinds of crimes. Murder is one of them. Certain kinds of murder, obviously, when you're talking about a barroom fight, it's a little bit different. But when you're talking about any kind of premeditated murder, any kind of child abuse crime, these, to me, as a non-murderer, non-child abuser, are impossible to understand, I think, on a fundamental human level. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in how you get into a character who does things when you're playing the opposite side of the street that you would never do. Because that seems to me to be much harder than playing someone that I could see myself being as a career. Well, I, I've not ever played a character either side of the fence, you know, uh, or, the, or, or the street, so to speak, where I wanted people to like me. Like the, the character Ray Luca on, on Crime Story. I mean, he was, by all accounts, you know, pretty reprehensible guy. I mean, he, he was a he, rough guy. I dude. mean, he killed the first series, the first year of the show. My character, either personally or was responsible for the death of fifty-five people. So we're talking <laughs> about you know, pretty, a pretty uncompromising kind of guy. But I didn't ever play a scene any time throughout the whole series, the two years that it ran, for people to like me. I only played it for the idea of people to understand me. I think in life that there are people who honestly believe, and I feel sorry for them, that I, I honestly believe that the ends justify the means. Now, when you get to that place in your life where the ends justify the means, sometimes you have to sit back and you say to yourself, is the ends responsible for a higher justice that might not happen? I mean, you can go through all of that uh, discussion as to like, because you know, there were episodes of The Closer where stuff like that happened, where the person looks like they were going to get away with it. And because of certain setups that like Kira's character did on The Closer, the person winds up being holding the bag and you know they're going to wind up, you know, dead. Not by the criminal justice system, but by the street justice. 
wow, Tony, this is really, really compelling and interesting. And there's so much more we want to ask you about. So we're going to have to continue this on our next episode. Please tune in next time to hear the rest of the story from our great friend and colleague, Tony Dennison. I got a million of them. All right. (laughs) Till next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Signing off for now. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Knowledge is power, and when we know the facts about sexual abuse, we can better protect kids. Darkness to Light has already trained more than 1.4 million adults to keep children safe from sexual abuse. I'm one of those 1.4 million, Jim. Using their Stewards of Children Prevention Training, they give you and gave me the facts, tools, and tips I needed to help keep the kids I love safe, and you can do the same with their Stewards of Children Prevention Training. Get trained today to prevent, recognize, and react responsibly to child abuse in your community. Learn more about Darkness to Light and child sexual abuse prevention at www.d2l.org. That's D, the numeral 2, L.org.